welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. The Democratic National Committee has sued Russia, the Trump campaign, and WikiLeaks, claiming widespread interference in the 2016 election as part of a, quote, brazen attack on American democracy. The lawsuit drew criticism even among Democrats. But DNC Chair Tom Perez, appearing on ABC's This Week yesterday, defended the suit and the timing of filing it. In order to file a civil suit, you've got to make sure you're filing it within the applicable statute of limitations. I don't know when Director Mueller's investigation is going to end, so we need to file now to protect our rights. Joining me is David Glovin, Bloomberg News East Coast legal team leader. David, tell us more about the allegations in this 66-page complaint. Sure. The DNC argues that the opening salvo on Russia's brazen attack on American democracy, that's the DNC's phrase, was a cyber attack on the DNC, um, according to the complaint, and, and it's um, mirroring allegations that have come up in, in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation and news reports. In 2015-2016, Russian intelligence service hacked into the DNC's computers, penetrated its phone systems, exfiltrated tens of thousands of docu- uh, documents and emails, and then Russia used this stolen information to advance its own interests. Um, and what the lawsuit claims and what others have said is that in the Trump campaign, Russia found a willing and active partner, that's a quote from the complaint, in disseminating information from from the DNC servers. So basically, it's it's information that's already been out there, nothing new. But could this mean that Trump's staffers from the 2016 campaign will have to answer questions under oath about campaign activities? And then, unlike the Mueller probe, where we don't really know what they have for sure, that we'll hear that information? Well, in addition to suing the Russian Federation and others in Russia, the lawsuit names the Trump campaign, um, the president, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Jared Kushner. So it is very likely that the DNC's lawyers, if they su- survive an eventual dismissal bid, will seek to question, to depose um, anyone and anyone, anyone and anything they can think of to learn what was going on. So foreign governments are generally protected under the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act from U.S. lawsuits, is it likely that after, as you said, a motion dismissed, that Russia will be out of the suit? Well, that's unclear. The D- there is the uh, far- Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act that, that would protect a foreign country and, and agencies of the foreign country. Um, there are exceptions to the rule, and the DNC is arguing that this case should be one such exception because it's a trespass on the computer servers. So that's something that will be litigated, uh, and the judge will eventually rule on. And that computer element is why they say they had to file this within what's called a statute of limitations. Right, right. I, I believe they said there was a two-year statute of limitation from, from the hack or the first hack, and we were approaching that date. So President Trump has threatened to countersue in tweets, saying we will now counter for the DNC server that they refused to give to the FBI. What is he referring to there exactly? I think what the president was referring to is that um, that the Trump campaign can 
just as the DNC can engage in discovery and, and question witnesses, the, the Trump campaign um, can do that as well, and, and that they plan to look into issues related to Hillary Clinton and other issues that, that would have us relitigating the 2016 election. Yeah, it seems like this suit will be a lot of relitigating of different things that we've been talking about for the last couple of years. This lawsuit actually echoes a 1972 suit by the DNC. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, it's a little bit. It's a it's a, it's a it's little bit right. The DNC successfully Nixon. sued after the Watergate break-in and did get a settlement. Um, and and that is one possibility here, of course. Um, but more more significant is that you will see the DNC seeking um, extensive discovery to find out who knew what and when. And uh, WikiLeaks has argued on its Twitter account that it's constitutionally protected from such suits. So we're going to see a lot of these arguments and talk about a motion to dismiss and how how that may play into all this. Sure. I mean, typically when a lawsuit is filed of this nature, the parties, even before discovery, will seek to dismiss on, on one ground or another. Um, the Russian Federation, Russia, will seek to dismiss, citing the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Wik- uh, WikiLeaks might point to First Amendment protections, perhaps. I'm unclear as to what the Trump campaign would do um, they may argue that this, there are facts insufficient for this case to go forward, even if accepted by the DNC, but they'll be wheeling at arguments in the, in the weeks and months to come. It's, it seems as if there's enough here to, to get at least part of it through a motion to dismiss. It's possible. It's certainly possible. Then you would see discovery. And as you see facts um, coming out from the special counsel um, or elsewhere, they could... It could lead to an amended complaint and more allegations in the case and more more claims. This could be around for a while. It, it, it could be. And um, I think it would be refreshing to know what is actually being asked of people and what their answers are instead of hearing things, you know, secondhand and thirdhand from reporters. Right. And that's one of, one of the, for those who want these issues to be, aired publicly, a lawsuit is typically, a civil lawsuit is typically in a public forum. So there are, uh, depositions might not be public when taken, but excerpts of the depositions can be included in in exhibits. Um, And uh, of course, if it ever goes to trial, um, then, then that's all in public. And we'll see how many years it takes to get to trial if it does. Thank you, David. That's David Glovin, Bloomberg News East Coast legal team leader. A record fine of $1 billion for Wells Fargo. The country's third largest bank has agreed to a settlement unprecedented in more ways than just the amount of the fine. Mick Mulvaney, who has been running the CFPB in addition to being Trump's budget director, explained that the settlement covers issues in Wells Fargo's auto lending and mortgage units. The size of the fine is historic. It's uh, $500 million OCC, $500 million to the, to the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. But the violations here were historical. Keep in mind that uh, by some counts, as many as a million consumers were impacted by just the, the two types of actions that were addressed in the consent order. Joining me is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. Bob, this settlement also gives the OCC the right to remove some of Wells Fargo's executives or board members. How tough is this consent decree in relation to others? Well, June, I, I think this actually sort of coheres with the others. It's quite consistent with them. In fact, you would almost think that it's all part of a sort of coordinated regulatory strategy among the various regulators who have jurisdiction 
over uh, Wells Fargo. So as you know, uh, back in February, uh, when the Fed announced that it was going to place a, a ceiling on the asset growth of Wells until it sort of cleaned up its act, among the recommended uh, cleanup actions were not only the putting into place of a better set of internal compliance procedures, uh, but also the removal and replacement of several uh, board members. So one might view the OCC's reference to this same possible remedy as, in effect, sort of echoing what the Fed has already strongly suggested. We might note also in this connection that it looks as though Wells has been thinking about um, retiring a few of those board members already because several of them have been on the board for many years indeed. So the settlement was the first enforcement action undertaken by the CFPB under the acting director Mulvaney, who, as we've discussed before, has been an opponent of the CFPB and hadn't announced any new enforcement action since he took over there. Does this ease the minds of consumer advocates about Mulvaney or not? I sort of doubt that it will, although I'm sure that something like that might have been in the mind of Mr. Mulvaney uh, when the uh, when his bureau uh, announced the particular sanction. The thing that's kind of puzzling about the sanction, um, I think, sort of explains why it is that some might be a little bit skeptical. So the first is there's absolutely no explanation given as to how that amount was reached or what connection it actually has to the actual losses that Wells is thought to have uh, inflicted upon its own customers. The best estimates out there as to those losses are that they're much, much smaller uh, than the fee, I'm sorry, than the fine itself. So I think some cynics or skeptics might think that this is sort of a political gesture uh, designed uh, on the one hand to kind of assuage uh, the concerns of some who are concerned that uh, Mr. Mulvaney is not a legitimate uh, acting director of the CFPB. Uh, And second, it might also partly be designed to respond to uh, Mr. Trump's tweet uh, about uh, Wells Fargo uh, some weeks back. And indeed, a piece came out this weekend suggesting that that's exactly what was at work here. Bob, there's also a departure from earlier CFPB practice in the consent order, which allows Wells Fargo to determine whether consumers suffered cognizable harm from the bank's activities. How will that affect the fine? Well, it's it's hard to tell at this point. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the nightmare scenario would be one where you know Wells purports to conduct a thorough investigation of the actual say, pecuniary damages that were uh, caused by its wrongs, um, and uh, arrives at very minimal uh, numbers. And then the CFPB says, the CFPB says, "All right, well, if you say so." Um, I suspect that's not going to happen. However, given that Wells has faced a great deal, of course, of negative scrutiny over the last several years, and is still in um, in the in the doghouse, uh, so. To speak. Uh, it's also maybe worth noting that, you know, Wells benefited up to close to $4 billion under the new tax cuts uh, from December. So it might actually view this particular fine as something eminently affordable since it simply takes away about one quarter uh, of the windfall that it received thanks to the new tax legislation that Trump was pushing back in December. The chief financial officer said on April 13th that investigations are, quote, midway through. What other investigations mm-hmm. are pending here? Well, it's, there's, as, as you might recall, um, you know, over the last several years, quite a few scandals have emerged. Uh, and one of the sort of meta scandals, you might say, that's sort of implicated by all of these scandals is that there's been inadequate sort of internal investigation within the massive and sprawling organization that is Wells Fargo itself 
into sort of what kinds of wrongs or abuses have been being committed, what kinds of harms have been being caused, who's been responsible, who's given the okay, and so forth. So in a sense, you know, as you and I have talked, of course, about some of the earlier wealth scandals, and uh, in a couple of our earlier conversations, we were noting that, you know, more shoes are probably yet to draw, uh, and I think that's still the case now. Basically, it's uh, it's taking a long time, I think, to go through um, the massive volume of records of this institution to find out what all the wrongs have been and, again, what the harms are that have been caused, uh, particularly the dollar amounts of those harms. And so I I suspect we're still, you know, in kind of investigation mode, even internally at Wells, uh, for some time to come. In about a minute, Bob, what Mm -hmm. shoes are going to drop perhaps during the uh, shareholder meeting tomorrow? Oh my! <laughs> well, that that should be that should be interesting. Um, so, the, the couple things to note, maybe really quickly, since we only have a minute. Um, you might recall that um, Wells's share price actually rose uh, by a couple percent uh, on Friday after the CFPB announcement. So, it could be that some shareholders are thinking, "Oh boy, you know, so very glad we have this behind us. Now we have closure, and they won't be so upset." I suspect many, however, aren't going to be satisfied as of yet. They might need clamor for some of those board changes, uh, and that would be an easy one for. Uh, Wells to sort of comply with, because again, they're already planning on doing that anyway with some of the longer serving board members. Well, we'll keep informed of that. that. I know that demonstrations are planned around the downtown Marriott in Des Moines, Iowa, where they're having the shareholders meeting. So perhaps we'll talk again on Wednesday, Bob. Thanks so much. That's Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell University Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.